much love. Girls, we run this mother. Yeah. Hi, Julie. Hello. How are you? So good. It's episode five of season three. Hells, yeah, and it's all about the ladies. Hi. Hi. So the angry feminist in me feels the need to put a caveat to this. So here's the deal. Renee and I wanted to do an International Women's Day episode. International Women's mm-hmm. Day is Monday, March 8th every year. Classic um, us. Classic us. And <laughs> then the week just ran away from us because what people need to understand is that International Women's Day ends up being the... Uh, feminist Super Bowl, where as feminists, you're doing like 8,000 events because everyone decides to have every conversation in the same day. So we were both just too slammed with work and decided that the best self-care for us would be to just take a break. So that's what we did. But my caveat is that as a Canadian feminist, I am so bitter with the amount of people who think that April is Women's History Month. It's not. It's in the States. America has oh. a Women's History Month in April. In Canada, it's in October. And the oh. reason why it grinds my gears is like, sure, talk about women's history now. But what happens is in October, people there's nothing because we don't we think that unless it's happening in the States, it's not real. And so this is my feminist rant that <laughs> International Women's Day, yes, is like international. It's every everyone is on March 8th. But Women's History Month is October in Canada. So Yeah, like don't forget like <laughs> Canadian Thanksgiving is also in October. So just remember it that way. Yes. And also, we will probably refresh this rant in October. But the reason why Women's History Month is in October in Canada is because it's the Person's Day, which is the big legal decision that decided that women were considered people under the law. That came to be in October. And that's why it became Women's History Month. So look at you, little encyclopedia brown. Oh, hey, I have two degrees in women's studies, all for this moment. Uh, so thank you for letting me shine. Uh, but that's why we're doing women's women's just like yeah, International Women's Day this week, and we both kept it pretty open for ourselves. So I'm really interested to hear what you read this week because we both just said, however we interpret International <laughs> Women's Day is how we're going to pick a book for this week. So I'm dying to know what your book is. I'm really excited to tell you, but Julie, I need to just turn this into a true crime podcast for just like a second. Ooh, yes. Do you remember a few years ago when I went into a deep dive into my hometown serial killer? I was really hoping this was somehow related Mm -hmm. to the serial killer of Marwood. Please tell me more. Yes. So the anniversary of me finding out about the Marwood serial killer was yesterday on my brother's birthday. Happy birthday, Willie. (laughs) Um, And I was really excited because I actually haven't really looked into it too, too much. I've been reading like the um, whatever was coming up from the courthouses that I could access. Um, But I posted about it on Facebook. And then a girl that I grew up with from Marwood was like, oh, he didn't get charged. And I was like, (gasps) pardon me? Yeah. So Jimmy Wise, who is my hometown serial killer, um, was like at large for like 30 years. So he was a mechanic, but he was just like a mischief maker, an arsonist, and a murderer. He burnt down like a ton of farms and he like killed people. He killed people that I knew. Um, And the reason that they were able to kind of catch him was because they found um, there was a skull that got washed through like a waterway in Moorwood that they found after the thaw one winter. Um, and it was a gentleman who, um, you know, was disabled and he had been left in a ditch, which is horrible. Um, but they were able to kind of like trace it back to Jimmy Wise. However, the cops just bungled this investigation so much over these 30 years, even though they had a special, um, like a special task force to follow Jimmy Wise. They still bunged it up so badly that he was going to get manslaughter, but got off entirely. Yeah. Yes. So there's actually this great article I found, um, like smalltownchronicleherald.ca, but they did this great, great article about the whole thing and how there was like, it was like, it's called like a game of cat and mouse inside the OPP's two serial murder investigations of one suspect. And there's literally like 
the detective who was head of the task force, he and Jimmy Wise literally played cat and mouse for three decades and met with each other and the whole kit and caboodle. It's bananas. See, bananas. So if you want to read the craziest small town serial killer story, it's there. The reason that they couldn't they couldn't charge him was because um, the evidence that they gathered that would have like 100% tied him to this crime, they didn't gather it legally. So they weren't able to use it, but there was literally a journal that was submitted to evidence they weren't able to use that had a hand-drawn map with little X's of every hit and every fire he started on it. What? <laughs> I couldn't use it. So oh anyway, my God. I mean, you um, know that tr the real nature, like the the, the <laughs> yo of true crime is just incompetent popo. Like that's oh, like- have, like- <laughs> Forever, because like honestly, ninety nine percent of true crime stories are cops fuck the dog for seventy years, and now <laughs> yeah, look at that. But also watch Brooklyn Nine Nine because we love cops. It's a very oh, confusing time. Who yeah. <laughs> <laughs> small town yeah. Canadian true crime trivia? Bet you didn't think you'd get that on a romance podcast, but you don't <laughs> fucking know Renee well enough if you didn't figure out that that was going to happen at some point. <laughs> it's really like my truest love is true crime. So Absolutely. Um, thank thank you. you for letting me share that with everybody. But Absolutely. Um, if you want to learn more, uh, just hit me up and I will tell you everything about <laughs> my boy Jimmy Wise. Oh, by the way, he had a stroke and he's in a wheelchair and he like can't even poop anymore. So like he got what was coming to him. It's fine. Well, yeah. And also like... Oh yeah, no, just that's just a lot. There's a lot to unpack there, and mm -hmm. also, uh, you know, adding to Canadian trivia for everyone. If you were playing Canadian Trivial Pursuit this week, you're crushing it, thanks to me and Renee. Um, but manslaughter and sexual assault are the two most difficult things to prove in Canadian law. So, oh, wow. uh, very interesting. Oh my goodness. Well, I'm happy to pivot away from yeah. to a book that does not involve murder or. Well, actually, it does involve police incompetency. So it involves police incompetency, but in a different context. But it's very much on brand, which today's episode is International Women's Day slash ACAB, ACAB. which I think are one and the same, honestly. Um, down with carceral feminism, up with ACAB. So longtime listeners of the show will recognize who I wear this week. So my interpretation of International Women's Week or International Women's Day as our theme, was to go back to an author whose book I absolutely adored. So Olivia Waite wrote the mm. incredible um, celestial beings, like women's um, yes. celestial. Yeah. So was obsessed with that book. It was so phenomenal. And so wasn't I delighted a few months ago when I saw that she was coming out with this second book in her, what she refers to as her Feminine Pursuits series. Oh, I bought this it. book. Like, I'm someone who did not read romance until this podcast, and I bought this book months ago just because I was like, I want to read this book. Like, that's how good it is. And then I was like, oh, it'll be perfect for this week's episode. So if you're not familiar with Olivia Wade, you don't recall, she writes queer historical romance, fantasy, science fiction, and essays. She has a very popular newsletter um, and is the romance fiction columnist for the New York Times Book Review. Fun fact, also a Jeopardy champion. We no. love a hot, queer, smart woman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jeopardy champ. And wow. this is the second book in her Feminine Pursuits series. So The Lady's Guide to Celestial Beings was the first one. And I love this little fun fact. So for the first book, it was about the stars, obviously. And mm -hmm. so she did a lot of art around stars and constellations around uh, for the launch of that book. This book, which is The Care and Feeding of Waspish Willows, or Widows, oh. pardon me, um, is about bees. Now, know, bees. That I can't, know that I can't say bees without picturing Nicolas Cage going, bees! So just like picture that as a narrative, like a gif that was basically playing in my head in a loop this whole time. Really? But I thought of that, that Oprah gif where it's like, you get oh. bees, you get bees. <laughs> like, that's what I think. Also very true. I just picture Nicolas Cage with that basket on his head being like, bees! Um, <laughs> because Nicolas Cage lives in my heart. But, um, so 
what I loved about her thing. So yeah, so when she did the the first book on celestial beings, she made all this art around stars. This one, it's about bees, but it's also about a woman who runs a print shop. So she made oh. woodcut style stamp covers for various historic, like classic romance novels. They're Aww. so beautiful. So I really recommend you check out her website for it because I'm just like, what a brilliant way to like hype up your book and create some like really cool swag. So what's exciting is this is the second book in her series and the third one, which is called The Hellion's Waltz about a piano tuner is coming this summer. So Ooh. if you are feeling it, um, you will get some fresh to death content very shortly. Nice. This book is very long. Not in a bad way. Uh, it didn't feel like it was dragging on and on, but it's quite long and there's quite a lot of subplots. So I'm really like giving you the skim version. This is like the 1% milk version of this book um, <laughs> because there's just too much going on for it to make sense for me to uh, run it through without it being an hour of me just giving you a summary. So I'm going to tell you about the care and feeding of waspish willows, which begins in London, May of 1820. And Agatha, who is 43, has been widowed three years and she loved her husband deeply, felt a little bit unfulfilled, but really did care for him um, in a really deep love, but that was more platonic than romantic. And she misses him dearly. And they together ran a print shop called Griffin Print Shop. And she now has running it on her own um, as the sole owner. And she has a young son who's 19. His name is Sydney, And he is a total fucking brocialist. <laughs> so he is like constantly getting drunk on the evenings, going to pubs, listening to these philosophers and these like Marxist speakers and just really getting high and mighty off of like how radical he is, but not actually having to contribute to anything, which in my experience um, is a real brocialist thing of like, you know, <laughs> socialist in the streets, like patriarchal in the sheets, like making sounds mom like a male ally. <laughs> exactly. Sounds like a proud feminist man. Uh, he and I say that because like he doesn't. He doesn't pull his weight, basically. So she's kind of torn between the fact that she, like, actually quite enjoys her work, but also recognizing that she's in her 40s, she's going to want to retire, but she doesn't feel like she can trust her son to take over the business because he's basically flaky. Hmm. And what really bothers her is she has this incredible apprentice named Eliza, who is so good at the work, super detail-oriented. So, you know, this is back in 1820, so you had to, like, carve out things in order to make pictures because they were basically stamps and like old school printing presses like it was very labor intensive and very detail oriented and Eliza is super good at the job but because of the patriarchy it's 1820 she can't just leave the business to a young woman she can't do that mm. so she's like I gotta get my son to get his shit together or else we're gonna lose this business which is really like our livelihood but also our legacy then she figures out because she is a mother that her her son, Sydney is banging Eliza. <gasps> and she's not mad about it per se, but she is kind of annoyed that they're, they think they're being stealthy in art, essentially. So she has a printing company, a little a mini shop in kind of a rural community outside of um, London. And she goes there to kind of check and see how it is. And that place, they print books. Not just newspapers and pamphlets, but books. So they need these big, big presses. And she goes there and she goes into the warehouse and she discovers bees. Bees. So then she's like, oh shit, this is a hazard. What do I do about it? The community is like, oh, you got to call Mrs. Flood. Mrs. Flood will help you out right away. So she's like, okay, cool. So Penelope Flood, Mrs. Ooh, Flood is... Great name. <laughs> right? Penelope and Agatha, you'll love to see it. Penelope Flood is a 45-year-old beekeeper whose husband has sailed away with her brother and is away on trips for long periods of time. And she is not just a beekeeper in the sense of like runs an apiary, but she, her whole thing is moving bees. So she doesn't want to kill them. So if you have a bee problem, 
you have her come and she basically coaxes the bees to leave and then sets you up with like um, a hive and you can get the honey. And at first Agatha's like, uh, no, just kill them. Like, just kill the fucking bees. But apparently Penelope, I mean, we think we're cool and edgy today in 2021 trying to save the bees. Penelope was about that life in 1820. <laughs> um, and she's like, no, I'll just move them to a hive outside of the warehouse. And then you can harvest the honey. And then it's like a win-win situation. And, you know, I live in the community. I'm happy to come and check on them to make sure the bee, the queen is doing well. And I can give you some updates. And she's like, oh, you know what? That is, that does sound really great. So then they start developing this friendship and they start writing letters back and forth, checking in on the beehive, asking each other about the work. Um, and that's how, you know, as a romance reader, you know, this is the beginning of a slow burn mm -hmm. relationship. Now, I'm going to pause here to tell you that there is a huge chunk of the book that's about the political situation at the time. So there's all kinds of stuff around. Um, the suffragette movement, right? Because it's 1820s right. London. So there's all this stuff around the suffragettes, women trying to get the vote, women trying to be um, enfranchised. There is the death of Queen Caroline. There is major political turmoil, societal upheaval, um, you know, labor rights. People are striking. People are like, there's riots in the streets. Like, it's just, there's so much going on um, that is incredibly fascinating if you have any passion for the historical part of historical romance like it's so good super well researched was so good then intertwined in all that is this friendship also bees in my experience i don't know why i have read so many books of fiction around bees and apiaries but they really do provide <laughs> oh my god i could tell you like 10 fucking books about fi fiction books that i've read about bees that i've adored um but they do provide a really beautiful metaphor for things like um, you know, following the queen versus like respecting the fact that like worker bees are actually more important than just the queen. And so like, you know, there's royalty, monarchy stuff happening in the background. And then they're expressing these metaphors through the queen bee. And like, so there's just like really beautiful shit in this goddamn book. It's so beautiful. And then things like, you know, if you know anything about bees, when you show fear, that's when bees get their backs up basically. But you can approach, if you approach a hive, really delicately and you're just calm and chill bees will crawl on you and they're not going to hurt you so that ends up being a metaphor where penelope is trying to teach agatha to trust again and like you know not to be scared and to fight for herself and just fucking beautiful then shit starts happening okay <gasps> agatha's son becomes more and more active in the uprising and keeps referring revolutionary writers to her to produce their pamphlets. And she no. supports the cause. She supports the cause. Okay. But she's like, we are going to get fucking raided by the Popo. And sure enough, they are. There's a government crackdown where they come and they take a bunch of the manuscripts. And they take a bunch of the printing presses that were going to be printing these revolutionary pamphlets. Um, and so now she's terrified because it's her livelihood and also it's her son's well-being. And also, you know, she didn't obviously didn't like having the cops come and fucking raid her house. But her love and her big, big feelings for Penelope are growing. And it only gets more complicated when she discovers that Penelope is a motherfucking gangsta and happily entered a marriage of convenience where remember how I said her husband and her brother are out to sea yes. doing work? Yeah, so her husband and her brother are in love. Oh. And because Penelope needed to get married in order to be left alone, basically, in society in 1820, she married this guy so that he could be with her brother and she just like bangs oh it out God. with whoever she wants whenever she fucking feels like it because he's like and I think at one point Agatha's like your husband doesn't mind she's like he literally told me he would be offended if I tried to have sex with him like nah we could <laughs> so then Penelope's like oh shit like you know I've outed myself to her and she's not repulsed like she's super into it and, and then you kind of the way in which Agatha is described is like the femme basically in the relationship. And Agatha's like the super butch woman who like wears men's clothing while she deals with bees. And like, it's just like, there's clearly like a femme butch dynamic, which whew, it's a soft spot. So then they discover let's, let's all spend Christmas together because Penelope's husband comes back from out being out to sea with the brother. And mm -hmm. so 
Agatha's like, hey, Penelope, it's just you and your son at home. Why don't you come over for Christmas? We'd love to host you. She's like, okay, okay. They finally bang it out. Yeah. When I say finally, I mean it's literally 300 pages of <laughs> slow burn before they bang it out. They do. Um, the holidays end, then they go back to sexting each other, sending each other like racy little notes. And then finally, Agatha and Penelope realize we're obviously in love with each other. And so Penelope says to Agatha, Why don't you just move in with me? Why don't you just move here and take care? We'll take care of the bees together. We'll live together. And Agatha says, No, I can't. I can't just leave my business. I don't trust my son. Please ask me again next year. Then they, you know, do good old makeup boning when you know you're going to end sex, which is also very hot. And like, dommy, like one of them doms the other. And I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. These 45-year-old lesbians in the 1820s, like, fuck me up. Soup's hot. And then one of them says, I love you. The other one says, I love you too. And then flees. And it's just like, oh my God, I'm so heartbroken. Well, doesn't fucking Agatha go home and realize, hey, wait a minute. Eliza is really fucking good at her job. I trust her. And my son's a fuck up, but he can run the company legally. So how about I just leave it to both of you as a couple? And then Eliza can actually run the business, but it's technically in her husband's name. So like you guys get married and then I can leave you the press. But doesn't her fucking apprentice Eliza say, I don't believe in marriage. Marriage is for the patriarchy. What? And, oh yes and then agatha's son sydney's like the brochalist who at first i was just like oh he's just like woke because it gets him laid it's like yeah she doesn't want to marry me and that's fine i know she, like i know we're meant to be together and i trust her and she just doesn't believe in marriage she thinks it keeps women down and then <laughs> agatha's like oh shit like the youths are teaching me things <laughs> so she says fine i'll just leave it to my son and you guys won't be legally married but you can have it because you know what you're right Marriage is a fucking trap for women. Fuck this. Has an existential crisis. Goes back to the tiny small town and says to Penelope, let's fucking do it. Let's be together forever because we're soulmates. And who cares what the people say? You taught me to just advocate for myself. And if that wasn't enough, then when before she leaves on her little voyage where she's going to tell Agatha, let's do it. She mentioned something about, oh, um, oh, wow, this is like gives me a lot to think about. And her son's like, yeah, I'm assuming you're going to want to talk about it with Penelope. And her, she's like, well, what do you mean? He's like, well, obviously you guys are like together, right? And she's like, uh-uh, what? And he's like, come on, you can't hide shit from me. And he's like, totally fine about it. He's just like, yeah, mom, you're happy. This one makes you happy. Cool. Aww. So good. So then I will read you a passage where, yeah, she goes back. She goes over to um, the countryside and says, how about we open up a second shop in oh town where we can work together and you can help the bees and I will sit on your face until we both die. And she's oh, like, my I love you. Let's do it. Ew, that's the fucking story. How good. Oh, I love it. So beautiful. Right? So beautiful. Soup's feminist. So I will say one there is a cameo from Catherine St. Day, the court the Countess of Moth, who, if that sounds familiar, it's because she's from the first book, Celestial oh, yeah. Mechanics. Yes, The Lady's Guide to Celestial Mechanics. So I feel like I fucked up that title 800 times this hour, but it's called The Woman's The Lady's Guide to Celestial Mechanics. So it's kind of cool how like you didn't have to read the first one, but there's like a little cameo where you're like, okay. And the Countess of Moth like helps her when the cops come and raid her print shop the countess like uses her privilege to be like excuse me sir you just take what you need and then you leave and they're like oh yes countess of course so like women's solidarity you know i fucking love it to a very open and pleasant marriage of convenience that was basically polyamorous loved that had not seen that in any other book and the last thing i'll say that i enjoyed about this book that was different like that has not happened in any of the books we've read is that there was very clear discussion of like how she was bi like oh Penelope was very much a lesbian through and through, but Agatha was like, no, I do love men. I just prefer, I prefer to like be with a woman and I'm happier with you. But like, I thought that was really good. Cause usually it's like, you got to pick a team, yeah. um, but not in this one. And uh, in terms of genital descriptions, there was a lot of cunny, which I found 
Interesting. <laughs> Had not heard that. Sweet okay. Channel. Oh. Sure. And there was explicit conversation of dildos. And oh. the reason why, Renee, is because Penelope teaches Agatha that there is a tradition where male sailors, married sailors, make or buy dildos for their wives. And they called it a he's at home. And the purpose is to make sure your wife doesn't stray. (laughs) So while you're out to sea, you leave a dick behind and then your woman can like bang it out on her own and doesn't need to like catch a D somewhere else. Oh my God. That is so Wanda Sykes. (laughs) Loved it so much. It was made from like (laughs) walnut wood. Um, I was like, okay. And they just like fucked each other with this dildo and it was very hot, but I was just like, loving the historical context of why it is at this and like of course the other one agatha's like oh what is this and penelope's like this whole thing that she just like pulls out of a drawer it's <laughs> so good um so last thing i will say is in terms of spice factor even though it took 300 pages for them to start fucking one there was definitely sexual tension throughout and two when they started having sex they fucking went down and busy so, because of her apiary ways, I'm going to say five out of five honey garlic sausage uh, in Ooh. terms of the spice factor. Yeah, that was the care and feeding of waspish willows by Olivia Waite. Or Waite, I'm it. not really sure how you pronounce it. Yeah. Um, thank you. It was a journey. And like, literally, I left out so many things because there was so much political turmoil, which again, I find infinitely <laughs> fascinating as a reader. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So that's me. Please, please, please tell me what you read. I want to know. Okay. Um, and I will get there. But I so I found my book totally by accident before I had picked anything for this this week. Um, she said a value village, and I picked it because like the cover looked really cool. And um it's just this cool picture with like this woman and she has these like red eyes and but she's it's like this old black and white uh kind of like screen print or like wood cutting woman or whatever victorian looking and then um the book is like this coral color and there's some mountains it's super cool it'll be on instagram it's probably the coolest cover i've ever seen so Ooh. i just bought it ain't no thing um it's written by this woman named Catherine v forest and she is a canadian american um, and she's very well known because she is the first, uh, she's the first author to ever put a lesbian police detective, um, in a story. And, um, she writes American lesbian mystery. So she's really well known for that. And her character, Kate Delafield, who's the detective in those books, was described as Miss Marple with Katie Lang, Sherlock Holmes, and Candace Gingrich. And you've got Kate Delafield. <laughs> it says, ex-Marine homicide detective for the LAPD, queer as the day is long heroine. So, and, the, and that character was actually optioned for a film that was going to star Mary Louise Parker as the detective and Tom Arnold. No! Yes, and it got no. scrapped, but I just think that's so fun. So. Catherine V. Forrest um, writes this series um, and they're all, they all have a romance component and they're very erotic, but she's one of the first people to put like real erotic, good lesbian romance scenes into contemporary fiction. So big deal. But Julie, I didn't read a detective novel. <laughs> what? No, no. Um, a long time ago, before there was ever detective novels, she wrote a little book called Daughters of a Coral Dawn. Oh, shit. Yes. A <laughs> Which lesbo is classic. Classic. And it's um, set in the future, which I love. And it is just the gayest piece <laughs> of sci-fi I've ever read in my fucking life. And, you know, it has horrible reviews. People hate this book, but... I loved it. I loved this book. So really straightforward book, easy read, just a good time. So Daughters of a Coral Dawn, yeah, fuck here me up we with go. Some Daughters of the Coral Dawn, yes. 
So the year is sometime in the 2100s. And this woman named Mother has come from a planet called Verna 3. And she's been brought to Earth from this man who was like, um, just like an adventurer. They fell in love. He brought her to Earth. And, um, you know, she's kind of into it, but whatever. She's But she stands out because she has these bright, bright emerald eyes. She's tall, tall, gorgeous woman. Um, and so he has to kind of like hide her away because she just really stands out. Um, but very quickly, like six weeks within their marriage, she's pregnant. Mother is pregnant. And we find out that on Mother's planet... Um, they have litters of babies. And so mother <laughs> is having nine daughters and father is freaking out. But mother also has like a psychic link to her daughters. And we find out it's because the aliens of Verna three are just like crazy smart. They're just like, they're psychic. They're all kinds of things. So mother has nine daughters. Here are their names, Julie. <laughs> oh my god, I'm so excited. Vesta, Hera, Venus, Minerva, Demeter, Diana, Olympia, Isis, and Selene. People hate that they're named after goddesses, but here we go. <laughs> now, not only is gestation shorter for Verna babies, um, they also m mature faster and they kind of stop aging at a certain point. But because of the earth DNA mixed with the Verna DNA. Now it happens that they can only have girl babies. So that's where we're at now. Now fast forward to 2199 and there are about 6,000 descendants of that's five generations of these Verna women. And, um, they are now meeting at, um, this super secret, Base that used to be like a weapons facility um, because mother has something really important to say. And what we find out is that this group, the 6,000, they're called the unity. Uh, they have to discuss their future because they are, there's 6,000 of them, but soon there's going to be 10,000 and they just stand out so much that eventually they won't be able to stay hidden um, anymore. And the other piece to that is that they are the smartest people on the planet. <laughs> and because now they've discovered um, a pill that means that they can have babies without men, the men on Earth are freaking the fuck out. And so what they say here is that um, men became uh, become spastic with terror every time women break through to new choices and freedoms, which is like, yeah. So what's happened now is that they've outlawed the sale of Estora, which is the pill that can help women have babies. And if you have a baby, you have to requ you require a, a sperm certificate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a whole thing. So with their numbers growing, they, they have to come up with a solution and they discuss different things. Like maybe there's a place on this planet we can go hide. We, we can reloc relocate there. They're all super smart so they can build like domes and invisibility shit, all of that. But they decide instead, Julie, to transfer to another planet outside of our solar system. And to do this, they um, acquire like... Um, a big spaceship and then a space station. But because they are responsible for all of the important innovations and technology and everything on earth with them leaving, there's going to be this whole big brain drain on the planet. So they can't leave without being noticed. So they have to be super, super stealthy. Finally, the time comes and they've all the people that have decided they want to go about a little bit more than 4,000 um, of the unity decide to go to this new planet. Um, they get onto their spaceship and they're ready to roll. And as they're leaving the solar system, um, three different ships show up and they're like, turn around. And they're like, no, and they're like, no, you have earth stuff. You have to turn around. And they're like, nope. And then they're like, if you don't turn around, we're going to engage you. And they start shooting lasers around the ship. And so they know it's the men who want them to come back to keep running the fucking planet. Um, and so they're like, trying to stall them and everything. And they're like, okay, 
Well, I guess we'll turn around and they're like, ha ha, foolish women. <laughs> and then you know what those bitches do? They throw an atom bomb at them in space. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, and they get away. No one dies, but they just happen to have this atom bomb hanging out on their ship because they planned for everything. They are 6,000 of the most brilliant minds on the planet. No man could stop them, Julie. (laughs) So prior to leaving Earth, Mother has decided that they need a new leader. Somebody young. Mother's very old, you know, but she hasn't aged. She's just like an old soul at this point. They need a young, vivacious leader who is incredibly brilliant, who can help them colonize this new planet. And she refers to what they call the inner circle, which are her nine daughters. Only, I guess, eight now. One of them passed away. Um, And they decide on a descendant of Hera's um, to be the new leader of the Unity because she's very young, but she's brilliant. And she's like hot as hell. And they're just like, yeah, this is great. Um, And her name is Megan. <laughs> so Megan is going to lead the unity into this new world and it's great. Now the other thing about um, this giant family, this unity, th- these descendants is that they're all gay. So gay. They're 6,000 lesbians. <laughs> the other piece is because they live so long, often they form relationships within the unity. So a lot of people online were really upset at the like incest component of this story, but I got to say cousins happen. Okay. <laughs> Especially when you're the smartest people on the planet, you're smoking hot, like you're diverse as hell. Like cousins are going to happen. Um, so they make it to their new planet. And what's really surprising to them is that it's very much like earth, very, very similar, except the color is coral. Their wa- the water is coral and the, the um like the earth parts are like this ivory color so it's a lot of like coral and ivory um and everything is covered with moss so they arrive on this new planet um megan is the first person to kind of get on the planet they're noticing this moss and they learn that everything is built the way that it is because there's this horrible terrible wind that comes at night and will like fucking kill them um so they have to kind of build around that but again they're the most brilliant minds ever Meanwhile, mother has taken Megan aside to say, look, you have to like lead these people. They're going to listen to you. They're going to follow you. But to be a good leader, you need to remain abstinent. You cannot have a lover or a relationship. You just need to be committed to the unity. And she's like, okay, no problem. So 15 years later, they are completely established. They have built these beautiful homes into the mountains. Um, one of the members of the Unity, who's a great artist, she has built these things into their homes so that when the night winds blow, it actually makes music through like the, the holes in these houses. Just a beautiful place. This, um, this is a, a planet with two suns and four moons. It's just like mwah, delicious. Perfect utopia. Everything is going great. Megan's a little lonely, but they're thriving. The civilization is thriving. Then they get hit by a plague um, or a pandemic, actually. Hit by a pandemic. Too real. Too real. Too <clears throat> so real. real. Yeah, where there's these air spores um, and they start killing a bunch of people because they get really sick. But because, again, greatest minds, blah, blah, blah. They are, they're able to stop this, this pandemic, but a bunch of people die and they're mourning and it's really rough. So this is all passed. And then they notice a ship. There's like a distress signal coming from space and they're like, oh shit. Oh shit. We can't like, we can't be found. We don't want people to know where we are. This is our planet. We're happy. Um, but they decide, well, if, if the, if the ship finds us, we'll help them. But if they, if they're just sending out a distress signal, we're going to leave it. So of course the ship finds them, they let it land and it's full of earthlings, Julie. So there's, Three men and one woman. And in the 15 years that they've been gone, I guess a little bit longer because it took time to fly to the planet. So let's say about 20 years. So in the 20 years that they've been gone, Earth has outlawed being a lesbian and women are not allowed to like hold any high, you know, positions of power. And they there's no you're not allowed to have birth control. You're not allowed to use the, the pill to get have babies, all this stuff. So um, they get permission to land on the planet and the, um, commander, his name is Ross. He's just like, 
a shit. He's just angry. He hates everything. Like typical barbaric male, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and he's getting these instructions to like land the land the ship, land the ship, blah blah. blah where to do it? So they land the ship, and he's just like, "What the fuck is going on?" And then he's greeted by all the unity, all these women. Um, and he's like, where are all your men? And they're like, we have no men. And it's awesome. Uh, and he's like, shit. Um, but then they invite Laurel, who's the woman on this ship, to come and stay with them. Because uh, she she a bitch like them. So they're like, come stay with us. And she's like, no, I'm going to stay with my crew. Because that's what I'm expected to do. But there's another member on the ship named Hannigan. And Hannigan is handsy and rapey and shitty. So... Laurel's kind of walking around exploring and Hannigan tries to like rape her. He like attacks her, tries to rape her, but they had drones on all these people. So they catch him. They like electrocute him. And he's like, Oh no. So then they take Laurel to keep her safe. Megan is completely entrapped with Laurel, but obviously she knows like, I can't have a relationship, but she, she decides, you know, here's this earthling and she knows nothing of our planet. And I want to show her everything. So they get like, she, she kind of takes her around to like learn everything and she sets her up to stay in her sister Vesta's or her aunt or whatever Vesta's home. Vesta's like a therapist. That's kind of like her special skill. She's like a therapist. So Laurel is staying with Vesta and then Megan keeps showing up to be like, let me show you all the things of our planet, which is called Maternus, which I should have mentioned earlier, but it's just the gayest thing ever. <laughs> and then their town is called Sybil. It's just as it's so gay. It's just so gay. So there's an event coming up for their anniversary, the anniversary of the colonization of this planet. And it's basically the lesbian Olympics where all the competitors do their shit naked. And then there's a big, like fat, like a, a fight. Like there's a big thing after, and there's a play and it's so gay, Julie. Like I'm going <laughs> to read to you the fucking play they put on, but it is, there's no, Listen, I saw Rent like three times. Um, what is described in this book is the gayest off-Broadway show. <laughs> I'm excited. Like, it's so gay. Um, so Megan sh- Megan shows her around after this like lesbian thing. And um, Megan is really into Laurel and Laurel's really into Megan. And because Megan is realizing now that like, oh, these women are all lesbians. And she's like, oh, that's, I don't. I don't know about that. Like that's not allowed on my planet. And, you know, but of course she is naturally a big old lesbian. Um, and so she's getting really into it. And then there's all these like erotic statues and she's like, Oh my God, like airing out her vagina. Cause she's like, what do I do? Um, and yeah, they just start spending lots of time together and they, you know, she really, uh, Laurel really wants to be with Megan. And then Megan's like, I can't because of, my, my promise that I made. And she's like, oh, I get it, but I'm so heartbroken. Meanwhile, the men of the ship have gone on like an excursion, I guess. They just want to explore the planet. Um, and they're about to come back. And when they come back, they've asked uh, Laurel to decide if she wants to stay or she wants to go. But Laurel knows that if she, like, even though she really wants to stay, once she says she wants to stay, Megan won't, like, she won't be a guest anymore. So Megan won't be able to spend time with her anymore. And that's really sad for her. But she's decided she's going to stay anyway. So, the men come back and Laurel has finally made a move on Megan, but then they get this like alarm and they rush out. And it turns out that Hannigan fucking put his hands on, um, a young woman who was one of the lesbian Olympians. And of course he didn't realize she was a fucking Olympian and she beat the shit out of him, but still she was really upset because like, there's never been any men on this planet and she's never been manhandled. And they say in the book, they're like, nobody touches anybody here without their permission and they're like but we're men and we were trapped in space like what do you expect from us you're women so they break all the bones in his hands which (laughs) i was like that's that's justice i like that Mm -hmm. commander ross is pissed he's like i can't believe you did that it's not like he did anything wrong and she's like no he touched her without her permission and he's like but it's not he raped her and she's like no if he did he would be dead right now like don't get it twisted So they have to decide what they're going to do with these men. And they decide they have to leave. They have to get the fuck out of here. And so they fix up their, their ship and they're like, leave. And they're like, well, we're not going to take our ship. We're going to take your ship, which was the ship that they arrived on called the Amelia Earhart. (laughs) Um, 
And because they're like, we know you probably fucked with our ship, so we're going to take your ship. And they're all like, oh, no. And then they're like, but Megan, they're going to send out distress signals to Earth and they're going to find out where we are. And she's like, actually, no, nobody's going to hear their signal. And we're blowing up the ship. So she fucking lets them go into space and then explodes their ship. But then she's just like devastated because, you know, she really feels like there was no way to win this situation and but nobody like she doesn't think like death is an option but in this case it was like the only option so she's really devastated but she won't let laurel comfort her and laurel's just like what do i do what do i do um and so she ends up talking to vesta who's the therapist like i'm in love with her you know i i don't know what to do i don't know how to help her and vesta's like well does she love you and she's like I, i'm sure she does like i'm sure she does and then vesta's like okay but she made a promise like she can't be with anybody so laurel's like i know it's awful but then mother calls an emergency meeting with Megan and she's like, get your ass in here. And so Megan shows up and she's like, you've sacrificed everything for our colony. And I made a mistake by forcing you to never have love. We're established now. You saved us. Go be with her. And so Megan gets to go be with Laurel and they fuck <laughs> nonstop. This is the end of the book at this point, like 200 pages. And they bang it out for the rest of the book. They just have yeah. sex and they're both like lesbian virgins and it's awesome. So very much in love, super happy ending, um, very clear, like men are trash, women rule narrative, which whatever, I'm here for it. Um, genital descriptions. What can I say? Um, they use the word moss a lot for mm. pussies. Um, okay. Yeah. Like that, that was it. Like, moss came up a lot or like the 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 dark triangle between her legs and um there's a part where like they're going down on each other and then um laurel wipes her pussy juice off of megan with her hair and i was like girl no, do <laughs> yeah, no. um but they get married and because they invented this like drug so they can have babies. They end up having babies and it's just like beautiful. And then the book wraps up at another lesbian Olympic and uh, mother's just like, Oh, you know, like I'm so bored here now. I, and you know, I miss my other daughters and my relatives. So they decide to go back to earth. And in 2002 and 2005, Catherine B. Forrest wrote follow-ups to this book. I don't think I'm going to read them because I think this is, this is perfect as it is. Yeah. Um, Who? Yeah, and there's a lot more. I mean, it was an easy story. It was a really easy cut and dry story. The whole book is written um, so from the perspective of Minerva, who's one of the original nine because she's the historian. And then in the second part of the book, um, it's from the perspective of Megan and um, Laurel, but it's like all in journal entries. So I thought that was okay. People hated this book. They <laughs> they hated this book. Everything about it. I thought it was when they finally started fucking, it was a pleasant surprise. I didn't think they didn't have to go as hard as they did, Julie, but Catherine <laughs> V. Forrest did that for us. <laughs> she did that for us. And um super spicy. I don't man, like, can we do tacos again this week? <laughs> Yeah, it yeah. was like one, give me a taco rating, and then two, I want you to just launch right into your um, yeah. your piece. Give us a reenactment, buddy. Don't leave <laughs> us right. waiting. Here we go. Here we go. Yeah. For those of, of you five. who don't know, <laughs> this book is like classic queer yes. canon. Like if you talk about lesbian lit, it's always on some list somewhere. Daughters of the Coral Dawn, c'est classique. Yeah. And you know what? I I never heard of it before, but I knew it had to be a big deal. And because the cover that I have is actually a really unique cover um, for the printing of this book, my kids like spilled yogurt or milk on my table and the cover, the back cover ripped right off. So I found another copy in England and I ordered it because yes. I'm like, this book is important and I need to have it. Uh, yes. But now I have a copy for each of my daughters to read one day when they're old enough and they're coming into their own as lesbians. So <laughs> love to see it. Here we go. <clears throat> Sybil glowed with light, light from its houses, from torches outlining the main square. I sat with Mother and Megan in the inner circle before a newly erected platform flooded with brilliance from a source invisible to me. 
Women crowded the square, the balconies, the bridges of Sybil. The night air was soft and gentle as it had been during the day, warmth radiated by inconspicuous solar units on the colony structures. There was a continuous murmur of expectancy, and I myself waited eagerly. The brilliance dimmed. The stage was illuminated only by the silver night and flickering ribbons of gold from the torches around the square. Figures draped in head to foot, shapeless clothing shambled onto the shadowed stage, their features dark cavities and ghostly white faces. Light came up slightly to reveal coarse, heavy cloth garments, dark, dismal gray. Each figure lurched about in isolation, yet with an odd, poignant grace. Two figures moved tentatively towards each other, only to scuttle away. Two others brushed together, stumbled apart, looking back lingeringly, yearningly. Light narrowed, focused, one figure tremblingly raised an arm. Ugly gray folds fell away to expose a bare arm, round and white, and so somber a context, dramatically beautiful. The mouth and the face upturned to the naked arm was an O of wonder. The arm was hurriedly lowered and covered again. The figure lurched painfully off to the shadows, but in the shadows the arm was raised again, exposed. A deeply shadowed corner of the stage gradually lightened. Two gray figures peered at each other. One exposed a white arm, the other hastened to cover it and then turned away and turned back and reached to the other, pushed the grayness aside and gazed at the naked arm and with trembling fear and need placed a hand upon it. Shadowed sections of the stage lit up one by one, figures lovingly stroked each other's bare arms. Suddenly, from center stage, a figure cast off at her confining garb. Shockingly nude amid all the shrouded figures, she leaped head back, arms flung high in, exalt in exultation. She was pulled down and circled, hidden from view as figures crouched over her, and she was dragged again, fully clothed into the shadows. But figures began to adjust their garb so that they might constantly reveal their limbs, raising and fastening hems to reveal bare legs. In narcissistic absorption, they performed individual dances of self-discovery, dances of fascinating intricacy and grace. Then all stopped as, uh, as at an integral sign and gazed at one another. One figure held out her hands. Applause began startling me. I had been immersed in a drama performed thus far to an utterly still and silent audience. Applause swelled as the figures joined hands and began to dance a compelling grace of uh, inventiveness in their confining clothing. The dance stopped and the dancers turned and looked at the sky. The stage abruptly darkened. For the first time, music began. Sonorous music from woodwinds, strings. Into a single spotlight stepped a figure. There was but a microsecond to see a white shirt and black pants before... Uh, spotlight vanished. Then the stage flooded with brilliance as dancers clad in bright-hued single-piece trouser suits danced in ex ecstatic abandon around and through a gigantic holograph, a spaceship identified by luminous lettering, Amelia Earhart. This dance had com uh, comic elements, pantomimed quarrels and acrobatic shoving, which brought much laughter from me as well. I remembered from their history the miserable months in the crowded ship during the journey across the stars. Darkness abruptly descended again. Even the torches outlining the square were extinguished. When light came, it was not at the stage at all, but strobe-like upon the mural of Megan standing on Maternus. Amid the wild cheering, I felt Megan stir beside me and knew I should not look at her. Bright stage lights came up. The dancers opened and stepped out of their trouser suits, flinging them into the shadows. They stood before us, their nude bodies dusted with diamond-like particles that shimmered with slightest movement. Uh, each, was single, uh, each was a single glistening shade in hues ranging from bronze to diamond white, and areas of their bodies were enhanced. A greater radiance decorated each breast and pubis with one other feature of distinctive beauty on each dancer. They leaped and floated in an anti-grav field. Holograph images formed among them. A dancer, uh, the color of warm sand, pantomime strokes on a holograph leer. Her slender wrist and hands outlined her in brilliance. Another, the lovely sweeping line of thigh-enhanced, shaped holograph poet, uh, pottery. Another stood upon the prow of a hydro hydrolift navigating choppy seas, her bright, delicate feet dancing for balance. Another, the smooth, powerful muscles of her arms outlined, hoisted and carried a woven basket of fruit. Another, of sensuously rounded hip, created furniture. Another, of finely shaped calf laid in mosaic. Scarcely breathing, I felt the joy and pride of the women on this world in their daily work and knew their beauty. The holographs vanished. In the slow motion of the antigrav, the dancers glided and arched and spread and shaped their glorious bodies into magnificent, glittering statuary, breaking and reforming into new uh, freezes of exultation. They turned to each other, an interwining of bodies began fluid and sensuous. Pairs formed, each performing a separate, separate pas de deux. Some playfully somersaulted in slow motion, tumbling grace around each other. One dancer formed her body into a circle, fingertips touching toes, slender body slowly revolving around her lovingly imprisoned partner. 
More and more erotic elements emerged. Dancers caressed the outlined features of their partners, and they soon embraced briefly at first and gently separating to stroke a glowing breast, a thigh, coming together again with shimmering limbs intertwining. The dancer of broad, strong shoulders carried the tiny dancer of slender wrist and hand, using her strength to treasure her partner's delicacy as she brushed her lips over an exquisitely formed breast. The tiny dancer ardently caressed the broad shoulders of her partner, glorying in her strength. In a slow, dimming light of each dancer also slowed, her body gradually fusing in love with her partners. Locked in embrace, they floated in a circle, and out of that circle, each extended a hand and took the hand of a sister so that the circle was joined. And that is the gayest <gasps> off-the-way production of anything that's ever existed. Um, thank so you. So gay. Oh so gay, right? Like, I fucking love it. It has, like, yeah. every, like... Saf, uh, saf oh, I can never sapphic is that how you say it yeah I'm like yeah. so it's one of those words where I can read it but I can't say it a lot yeah it's like when you close your eyes and think of like what is a cliched stereotype <laughs> of how women gangbang each other that's what it is that's oh, yeah. what it looks like and like I haven't read I don't think I've read any other like lesbian romance but they like straight up scissored in this and I was like right on right on <laughs> ladies good for you I, I love it I love it too. I love it too. Um, last point thing I will say is that something people really hated in this book um, was that they describe mother's breasts as um, like watermelons or cantaloupes. They call them cantaloupes. And as she gets older, they call them grapefruits. Um, but that's the only time they reference fruit to boobs. So like, I don't know. It didn't bother me, but it bothered a lot of people on the internet. And I just feel like they're not real lesbians if that's how they felt about it. So. Uh, hundo percento. So one, my thoughts and feelings are, Megan being the hero in a story right now just absolutely cracks me up because <laughs> Megan Merkel is the hero we all want right now. So um, right away when you said Megan, I'm like, that's funny because it sounds like such a different name than everyone else. But also Megan Merkel has endeared that name to me forever. <laughs> Two, every time you say mother, I think of Mike Pence referring to his wife as mother <laughs> or Arrested Development. <laughs> Uh, well, that's where I went in my head. Um, and then every right time I thought of mother, I'd be like, mother, like Danzig. So, oh, yeah, <laughs> different no. strokes, different strokes. <laughs> I definitely was thinking of fucking oh, Arrested Development. What the fuck's that? His name, Buster Bluth. Buster, yeah, Buster Bluth. <laughs> um, and also, I can't help it. So I know it's taken actually from either The Hobbit or The Lord of Rings. I can't remember. But War on Women, which is a feminist punk band out of Baltimore yes. that I recommend folks check out. One of their songs, one of my favorite songs, the opening lyric is, it's a song about misogyny because their music is feminist as fuck. Um, and one of their opening lines is like, no man can kill me. I am no man. And that's literally what I thought of right away when you were talking about Daughters of the Coral Dawn. I was just like, yes. Oh, yeah. Um, all men must die, but we are not men, so we're safe. Who loves to see it? Well, if you want to take a tonal shift to more of a romantic, lovey-dovey approach to gay-ass times, can I read you a passage? Please. I'm ready. The other thing I before I will uh, that I didn't mention earlier, but last week we listened, we read mature books mature. books about mature women and i had no idea when i picked up this book that this was about two women in their mid-40s that uh, are in love with each other so i love 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 that we had that two weeks in a row because we need to see more of that so this is the end of the book it's kind of the last chapters and agatha has been you know sitting in her mind with this offer from penelope and penelope was obviously hurt when agatha said no but she did at least say ask me again in a year maybe my situation will change so penelope hasn't completely closed the door on their relationship but she's like you know what i'm just gonna keep keeping the bees and keep the bees happy and i'm just gonna live my life and if she ever comes around she comes around but so heartbroken but, you know, not completely close the door. And I say that because she's about to be surprised. <clears throat> Two days later, Agatha took the stage into Melitin. Even though she wasn't expected at Fern Hall for another few days, she wanted this to be a surprise. She left her things in the care of Mrs. Biswas at the Four Swallows and went walking the circuit toward Fern Hall to find Penelope. 
It felt wrong striding along the familiar roads and paths in skirts rather than trousers. The fabric of her dress caught on quite a few more briars and branches than she was used to. Her light cotton hem was rather dusty and her petticoat a bit torn before long. No doubt Penelope's romantic soul would enjoy the idea, but not the reality, of Agatha showing up in tatters to beg for... Oh, why is my cobalt so slow? To beg for forgiveness. Penelope Flood was, pragma- was a pragmatist at heart for all of her love of poetry. Just one more reason to love her, really. Agatha walked as quickly as she could, but it wasn't fast enough to suit her impatience. So as she walked, she plucked flowers. Columbine, hyssop, king cups, dog roses, and more. Names and nature she'd learned from Penelope, along with all the local plants most beloved by bees. To this bounty, Agatha added a long, twisting tendril of Enchanter's Nightshade, which Penelope had said referred to the witch Circe, who changed men into beasts. Agatha had meant to ask more about that. She was curious about the full story. If only she could find where the damn woman went. She walked past the Turner Place and up across Squire Thaden's slopping fields to the small copse beyond, a shady, curving bowl of trees with a small spring and carpet of Lily of the Valley. And there was Penelope. Brown coat, men's trousers, so beautiful and so very herself that Agatha had to stop and press a hand to her heart until she could breathe again. No point apologizing if you were only going to faint before the thing was properly done. Penelope didn't look up from the hive as Agatha approached, her hearing muffled no doubt by her veil and the joyous buzzing of three hives worth of bees. Agatha could relate. Her own heart felt overfull of noise and wings. She had no idea how to begin, so she chose something utterly banal and said, Hello? Penelope froze, then slowly pivoted. The smoker at her side puffed once as her hand clenched tight, and her eyes went very wide as she took in Agatha with her hem in shreds and her hands full of flowers and a lump the size of whales in the back of her throat. Hello yourself, Penelope said in return. And now it was Agatha's turn again. She had to speed things up, or at this rate they wouldn't get this mess sorted out before winter came and froze them where they stood. I made you something, Agatha said, and held up the flowers. She'd used the enchanter's nightshade to weave the various blossoms into a coronet. Or a cornet, is that how you say it? A crown, mm. basically? Bright, I don't fucking know. And stick, and stick the flower into a, cr- a crown, bright and blooming and fit for a fairy queen. Penelope blinked, mouth opening and closing. She seemed staggered as if Agatha were speaking a foreign language she only halfway understood. Her eyes never left the crown. Cowslips, she said. I could quote you some excellent poetry about that. Agatha sighed. Go ahead. I deserve it. Penelope was startled into a laugh. You said you can't have two queens in a hive, but that just means only one of us can be queen. She stepped forward, her heart hovering on the back of her tongue, ready to fly out from her lips. I think it ought to be you. I came to tell you I'm sorry for yesterday, and to ask if I could change my answer. To ask if you'd like to share a home and a life with me. She stretched out her hands, holding the the crown. She was proud of the way they barely shook at all. Penelope raised a finger and almost touched one trembling petal. A bee from the hive behind her beat her to it, diving into the bell of the flower, its velvet legs dusted with gold. Penelope's face lifted, and now her smile outshone the sun in the sky above. What if neither of us are queens, she said to Agatha's surprise. What if we're only a pair of lowly worker bees? Agatha stared down at the the crown as more bees found their way toward it, setting themselves in, in the flowers like tiny gems. That sounds much less romantic than what I had planned. Is it? Penelope set aside the smoker and moved forward, her gloved hands cupping the back of Agatha's. Heat crept up Agatha's skin at the touch. Worker bees depend on one another, Penelope said. They can't thrive or even survive on their own. One corner of her sweet mouth quirked. I'd be no good without you, you know. Hope struck like a kick to the chest. Is that a yes? Of course it is. Agatha's heart gave a great leap, joy and gratitude and love, all expanding infinitely, as if there was a whole second sky within her. She blew out a breath as the fear and tension of the past few days melted away. And here she was with stars in her eyes and her hands brimming over with flowers. I still think you ought to wear the crown, she said. I went to some trouble. Penelope laughed and bent her head and blew gently until all the bees flew grumpily away. We can take turns. Her gloved hands raised the the crown and set the hole on Agatha's brow. It prickled terribly, but Agatha didn't care. She was too busy pulling off Penelope's white hat, the bee veil tangling between her fingers as she bent low for a kiss, 
catching Penelope's breathy laugh on her tongue. One kiss led to another and another, and together they sank to the grass of the meadow as the buzzing of bees played a lazy, loving counterpoint. Oh my god. Isn't that cute as shit? That is the cutest thing I've ever heard. It's so cute. And that is what I love about Olivia Waithe is like when it's romantic, it's romantic and beautiful. And when it's hot, it is filthy. Yes. You know, the only queens in this book, though, were those sailors. So. Oh, excellent point. (laughs) I still. Yeah, I will. It's just like. And things like that. Like the fact that she would marry someone so that that person could sleep with her brother. Like, I'm sure that was astoundingly common. And I find, like, queer history so fascinating for many reasons. One of which is, like, the creativity in the stealth. (laughs) Um, And, like, just the creativity of, like, women who were like, I'd rather be a nun and get to fuck women all day long than, like, be someone's wife. And just, like, I don't care about Jesus, but I care about being stuck with women behind closed doors. Uh, Like, I just love it. So, big fan. Happy International Women's Day, Renee! Oh my god, you too, my sweet angel. I'm so glad we did this. I'm glad we took the week to take a break for ourselves. I'm so glad we read fun, fun, fun little books. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you want to share with the folks what they can expect next week? <gasps> We're doing hot goths, right? Hells yeah. Yeah, hot goths. But the twist is that they are old gothic romance novels like pulp stuff yeah so you are absolutely gonna want to follow us on insta and twitter because we're gonna show you the covers of those books and they are a treat and a half and also you should just follow us on socials to begin with because renee manages our instagram account and it's one of the funniest accounts on insta so you're gonna want to follow us there ravage live on both twitter and instagram typically drop a new episode every single Friday and yeah join us next week where we're gonna read some gothic pulp and I'm pumped oh my god it is my time to shine (laughs) this is truly like you are the circle of this Venn diagram absolutely yeah this is this is my time I'm pretty sure mine has a ghost in it so (laughs) give me a ghost give me a haunted house that is my dream I'm so happy for you all right I am Let's just like wrap this up so we can start reading our hot goth novels. 100%. 100%. Want to sing us out, baby girl? Sure do. Ravage love. Ravage love. Boy, bye. That's Catherine B. Forrest. <laughs> <laughs> bye. Bye. Artwork for the podcast was created by Karen McKnight. Special thanks to Press Start to Join for production assistance. For gaming and tech news, search Press Start to Join or on social media at PS the number two J Show. Connect with us online at Ravage Love on Instagram and by email at ravagelove.podcast at gmail.com. Ravage Love.